0: Hello everyone and welcome to Building the Machine, a new podcast series from Red Leg Nation Radio. Over these 12 episodes, we're bringing you the story of the Big Red Machine, Cincinnati's baseball dynasty that changed the game forever. Day by day, year by year, you're going to see how the machine was constructed, experience all the highs and lows, and see the legacy that remains. Each week, we're bringing you a new episode focusing on a single year from 1969 to 1979, If you didn't get to experience the Big Red Machine as they were dominating baseball, you're going to enjoy the chance to experience the story as if you were there and learn more about the names and events that were so important in shaping the narrative around the Cincinnati Reds. We're also going to give you some thoughts on things that were different about baseball back in that era, from salary negotiations to the way the game was played to the things that happened that made this team become what it became. If you were fortunate enough to watch the machine live, this was going to be a fun blast from the past. This is episode number five. Close but no cigar, again. I'm Chad Dotson, and joining me now to discuss 1973 for the Big Red Machine is Bill Lack. How are you today, Bill?
1: I'm good. I'm good. It's 73 is a, is an interesting year for the Reds. It's a it's an exciting year, but it ends again in disappointment.
0: A common theme of the early Big Red Machine, right? Absolutely. Let's talk about, as we do at the beginning of each of these podcasts, what was going on in the world in 1973. In the news, the U.S.'s involvement in the Vietnam War ended with the signing of the Paris Peace Accords. The Watergate hearings began. Spiro Agnew resigned as vice president of the United States and then later in federal court in Baltimore pleaded no contest to charges of income tax evasion uh, that occurred while he was governor of Maryland. Uh, Kind of an interesting year in the news, a, a landmark year in the news for uh, the United States, certainly, Bill, wasn't it?
1: Yeah, the, the Watergate hearings made a, a, a big, you know, Senator Sam Urban and his eyebrows became an icon.
0: <laughs> uh, Bill, you want to tell us what happened in the world of music in 1973? A lot of
1: interesting things in music and
0: movies that, that year. Um, Pink
1: Floyd released Dark Side of the Moon, uh, which is one of Rock's landmark albums. It, it, it was on the uh, charts for over 900 weeks and sold over 45 million copies. And for those of you, if you want to do some quick math, 900 weeks is 17.26 years on the charts. That's not bad. That's a, that's a, that's a couple of days. I think You can make a couple of bucks on that. Uh, Zeppelin played before 56,800 people in Tampa Stadium on their 73 North American tour, breaking the Beatles record that had been set at Chase Stadium. Elton John released his most successful album, Goodbye Yellow Brick Road. Queen released their first album. Some other first albums that were released that year were... Uh, uh, Leonard Skinner released their first album. Some other good albums that year. Quadrophenia, the Who's second rock opera. Uh, Let's Get It On by Marvin Gaye. Band on the Run by Paul McCartney and Wings. Dixie Chicken by Little Feet, which is one of my favorites. Trace Ombres by ZZ Top, another one of my favorites. Uh, Billy Joel did his first release with Columbia Records called Piano Man. Uh, Hip-hop was reportedly originated by DJ Cool Herc in New York City. And some of the biggest singles uh, were Angie by the Rolling Stones, Tie a Yellow Ribbon Around the Old Oak Tree by Tony Orlando and Don, Bad Bad Leroy Brown, and three of my favorites in the top 25, Let's Get It On by Marvin Gaye, Frankenstein by Edgar Winner, and we're an American band by Grand Funk Railroad.
0: Definitely. A big year in music and also a big year in, in movies. One of my favorite years. Of course, the 70s is uh, probably my favorite decade of movies. And 1973, was a really important year in movies. Uh, the best picture and the highest grossing film that year was The Sting. Robert Redford and Paul Newman. If you've not seen The Sting, it's uh, it's incredible. I'm sure you've seen that, haven't you, Bill? Oh, many, many times. Yeah. Fabulous movie. Also released that year, uh, The Exorcist, which was the second highest grossing film. A movie in the highest worldwide in 1973, American Graffiti. George Lucas uh, directed that one just before Star Wars, starred uh, uh, Ron Howard and a very young Harrison Ford. Last Tango in Paris. Uh, Roger Moore's first turn as uh, James Bond in Live and Let Die. Uh, some good movies there. The
1: high point of the high point of that movie was the theme.
0: That was absolutely the theme sung by <laughs> Paul McCartney and Wings. Exactly. Uh, Two of my favorite movies ever, and if you've not seen these movies, I'm going to go off on a, just a very short uh, diversion here. Two of my favorite movies ever were released that year. Uh, one that I may, it's in my top three of all time, is Badlands. It's directed by Ter- Terrence Malik. It stars Martin Sheen and a really young Sissy Spacek. Both of them are really young. And it's just an incredible, incredible movie. If you've not seen that, go see Badlands. Also, Mean Streets. Uh, Martin Scorsese's Mean Streets, starring Harvey Keitel. And again, a really, really young Robert De Niro who, had, uh, who would go on the next year to star in The Godfather Part II. Uh, any other thoughts about the movies in 73, Bill?
1: Yeah, um, and I saw Mean Streets, and I'll be honest with you, it didn't do nearly as much for me, apparently, as it did for you. I saw it recently, as a matter of fact. Some other movies that year, Westworld, which isn't as good now as it seemed then when you watched it, uh, Serpico, Soylent Green, spoiler alert, it's people. <laughs> Paper Moon, Tatum O'Neill won an Oscar. Dirty Harry came out with their second movie, Magnum Force. The Way We Were, The Paper Chase, which I just rewatched on TCM late the other day, where John Houseman won an Academy Award. The first, the original Walking Tall, with you know, by Buford Pusser, came out, and John Wayne put out a really terrible movie called Cahill U.S. Marshal.
0: You noted Paper Moon. Uh, it's, again, Peter Bogdanovich's follow-up to, uh, to a couple of the greatest movies ever. His first three movies are just an incredible trio, and he never really made another good one after that. But yeah. Tatum O'Neill and uh, and Ryan O'Neill starred in, in Paper Moon. Great, great movie. In television, we had uh, the premiere of Kojak, had the last episode of the original Laugh-In, Bonanza, Mission Impossible, The Mod Squad. Now, I know you were upset about Mission Impossible going off the air, Bill.
1: Actually, I was upset about The Mod Squad going off the air. Oh, really? It, oh, man, that was the coolest show in the world at the time. And when you were, I was 15... And now it's funny because we've watched it since then on, on on I think it was Netflix when you did it on discs you could still get ModSquad, Squad, and it, it it has not aged well. And you could play it like a drinking game where every time Link said "solid," man, you'd be drunk by the first fifteen minutes.
0: <laughs> Sounds like a plan. Yep. Uh, the debut of the nineteen seventies version of Match Game, and and that is uh, again I didn't get to see it until reruns much later. But uh, Gene Rayburn as the host with that uh, impossibly skinny. Microphone and just a hilarious, hilarious show starring the incomparable Charles Nelson Riley. Uh, number one daytime and, R- television. and
1: Richard Dawson.
0: And Richard Dawson was on there before and, and Family Feud.
1: For those who haven't heard the podcast where Chad and Chris Garber go on for 20 minutes
0: <laughs>
1: about Charles Nelson Riley and Match Game, it's worth a listen. I can't remember exactly which episode it was. But it's worth a listen. And they talk about his Gene Rayburn's long microphone.
0: Yeah, go find it in the archives of Red Leg Nation Radio. It's it's still there. Yeah, that, that one went off uh, off the rails just a little bit. But come on, Gene Rayburn. The show was great. A Charlie Brown Thanksgiving aired on CBS for the first time that year as well. Now, going back to Match Game, it was the number one rated daytime television program that year. Uh, and also the following two years. And the number one game show from 73 to 77. Go watch Match Game if you can. Well, any other thoughts about television in 73, Bill?
1: The only other thing is, in, in January of, of that year, Elvis' aloha from, ha- ha- from Hawaii via satellite was seen worldwide by over 1 billion viewers.
0: Elvis was still a thing. Elvis was the king. He was, indeed. Now, in sports, the Miami Dolphins completed the first and only perfect season in National Football League history when they defeated the Washington Redskins 14-7 to in Super Bowl Seven. You remember that Super Bowl, Bill?
1: Absolutely. And the the Gary, a premium muffed field goal and Mike Bass running it back for a touchdown. That was the only thing the Washington Redskins did right all day.
0: The New York Knicks with the Walt Frazier, Bill Bradley, Earl, the Pearl Monroe defeated the Lakers, who had Jerry West, Wilt Chamberlain and Gail Goodrich uh, in five games in the NBA finals to win the NBA championship. Yeah, but you don't mention Willis Reed here. They still had Willis Reed at that point. They did, but he was uh, on the downside at that point, uh, if you look at the stats from the 73 team. I should have mentioned him, though, He because he was key in the, the championship two years prior.
1: And, and, uh, and, a, and a future Hall of Famer.
0: Absolutely. Montreal Canadiens uh, defeated the Chicago Blackhawks four games to two to win Lord Stanley's Cup. George Foreman defeated Joe Frazier to win the heavyweight world boxing championship. You big George Foreman fan back in the day, Bill?
1: No, I was not. I was a big Muhammad Ali fan back in the day, and, but I can remember this fight. I mean, if you've never seen this fight, and you, I'm sure, once again, you can see it on YouTube or something, it, he hits Frazier and knocks him off the ground. And, and it's just another thing about And I'm a boxing guy. I love boxing. It's just another thing that, that shows that the contrast in styles is what makes fights. Ali always had trouble with Frazier, knocked out Foreman. Foreman destroyed Frazier and it's contrast make fights and it it was an unbelievable fight short but unbelievable
0: secretary in 1973 won the Kentucky Derby the Preakness and the Belmont Stakes became the first triple crown of thoroughbred racing since 1948 triple crown winner
1: and secretary was also the Sports Illustrated Athlete of the Year and by many considered the greatest racing horse ever
0: indeed Here's one for me, Bill. You're just going to, have to let me roll with this one. Tottenham Hotspur, the world's greatest soccer team, wins the Football League Cup final at Wembley. They defeated Norwich City, the Canaries, one nil. Oh, Tottenham Hotspur, right? Are, are you talking to me? The Battle of the Sexes was that year as well. <laughs> Billie Jean King defeated Bobby Riggs in a televised tennis match, six four, six four, six three. It was held at the Astrodome in Houston, Texas. It remains the largest live audience ever to see a tennis match in U.S. history. Uh, over 30,000 saw it live, and then on television it was uh, viewed in 36 countries, estimated at 90 million viewers. And that was something that you, we talked to earlier about Watergate kind of taking up all the oxygen in the room when it comes comes to uh, news. That was something at the time that was uh, heavily covered, right?
1: Oh, yeah, yeah. And if you don't know the whole story of this, it, it dates back to a little, a little earlier, and I don't remember whether it was earlier in the year or the previous year. Bobby Riggs had beaten, I think it was Margaret Court. In a in a match, and he he thumped her, and so you know he, he got mouthy and got you know got out over his skis and challenged Billie Jean King, who was the the best player in the world for women at the time, and uh, she was having none of it, and she she just thumped she played with him this whole match. I mean she was it was never in doubt.
0: And if you don't know much about it, you, there is a, a film that was made uh, back in 2017 called Battle of the Sexes, It starred. Steve Carell as Bobby Riggs and Emma Stone as Billie Jean King. And it's not a very good movie, but it, uh, it has its moments, I guess. So, Born in 1973, comedian Dave Chappelle, one of the funniest guys on earth. Boxer Oscar De La Hoya, tennis star Monica Seles, former Red Aaron Boone, Adam Scott from Step Brothers and Parks and Recreation, the immortal Bartolo Colon, actor Neil Patrick Harris, and the last two, I, uh, they kind of go together for some reason.
1: Monica Lewinsky and Chad Dotson. And they have been seen dining together at Evitt's in, in D.C.
0: It's true that I did live in D.C. at the same time Monica Lewinsky was there and all that went down. That's when I and was Neil there.
1: Patrick Harris will always be Doogie Hauser to me.
0: TV's Doogie Hauser, absolutely. Died that year? Who, who tells who died that year? And, and the first one always amazes me because it seems like he should have died in the 17th century.
1: Yeah, Pablo Picasso died in France. Uh, Jim Croce died at age 30 following a gig. He was in a plane crash. All six people were killed. Former President Lyndon Johnson passed away. Uh, Bruce Lee died at the age of 32. And movie star and longtime pinup star Betty Grable passed away.
0: Okay, let's get to 1973 and the Cincinnati Reds. And we talked a little in Episode 4, Bill, about the Dodgers and Reds rivalry. And, you know, it's a good idea before we begin the actual season of 1973 to discuss that a little more. Because, again, it's something that many modern baseball fans don't really remember, that there was a Dodgers-Reds rivalry. And there was one, and it went on for a little while. How do you remember, first of all, before we talk some specifics about that rivalry, how do you remember the rivalry as a big-time fan of the Reds Uh, in the 70s? We hated the Dodgers.
1: I mean, I'll I'll give you an example. I saw Elton John... In Cincinnati, 1976, August, shortly before I went in the Navy. And, you know, he, he always wore the Dodger hat. He came out, and the audience booed him off the stage. <laughs> Somebody threw a Reds hat out of the audience, and he put it on, and the place went berserk.
0: See, I didn't know that. That's fantastic. That,
1: that tells you what the what – the, I mean, you didn't wear you – wouldn't, you wouldn't have worn a Dodgers hat in Cincinnati at the time. It just was not done. The, and 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 even taking that an extension further, the teams didn't like each other either. There was more than one brawl between these teams in the seventies.
0: The Dodgers have had a number of rivals: you know, the Dodgers-Yankees uh, from the Brooklyn days, the Dodgers-Giants, obviously, but the Dodgers-Reds in the seventies and uh, and through most of the eighties, actually, too. Well, Sparky Anderson summed it up like this: He said, "I don't think there's a rivalry like ours in either league." The Giants are supposed to be the Dodgers' natural rivals, but I don't think the feeling is there anymore. It's not there the way it is with us and the Dodgers. So, and it was something that was really palpable, frankly, and, and something that you know these are professional baseball players, but that's the part of it that really, when you read about it, kind of uh, surprises me, is that uh, they're not so professional sometimes. They really, truly did not like the guys on the other team and really, truly wanted to, uh, you know, put their foot on the other team's throats, didn't they?
1: Yeah, absolutely, and and it was. Palpable.
0: And here's here's why they were such big rivals, obviously. This was the time, beginning in 69, was the divisional alignment of the National League and American League. And so there's the National League West and the National League East, and the Reds, for some reason, is in, are in the National League West. And in the the decade of the 70s, except for 1971, when the Giants won the division, the Reds or the Dodgers won the National League West in every other year of the decade. And in seven of those years they represented the National League in the World Series. So, these are two teams that are as good as they've been in their franchise's history, frankly. And you wonder how many more the Reds or the Dodgers could have won if the other team hadn't been in their way during the same. They were both really, really good with a really good core. I mean, the Dodgers the core was guys like were guys like uh, Steve Garvey and Ron Say. Um, Dusty Baker a little later, I guess. Davey Lopes. Davey Lopes, Tommy Lasorda was the manager, Walter Alston before him. Uh, it's a it's a legit team full of stars, just like the Reds were. The Reds were a little better, but they were battling every single year.
1: Well, yeah, and you have to remember, but for eight of those 10 years in the 70s, these two teams finished 1-2. I mean, that's pretty amazing. And between 72 and 78, they both won three division titles. The Reds also won two World Series titles. But if the Dodgers had won a couple of their World Series, who knows what we'd be talking about. Between 72 and 78, The Reds averaged 97 wins. The Dodgers averaged 94. I mean, these teams were were really, really close. And I went back and I I looked, and their their pitching was close. Their hitting was close. You know, the runs they allowed per game, the runs they scored per game, were, were pretty close over the years. The Dodgers generally had a little bit better pitching some years, but never dramatically better. The Reds had generally better hitting. And, and, and in, especially in the 75, 76 seasons, it was dramatically better. But they were pretty close up for those seasons. Individual awards, the Reds kind of outdid them. The Reds won six MVPs in the 70s to the Dodgers won. And I went back and looked up how many top 10s in the MVPs. And the Reds had 22. The Dodgers had 11. The star power on these two teams
0: was incredible. And And it's mostly the 70s. Talks more about the seventies if you want, Bill. But it it continued into the eighties when I started becoming a big Reds fan. It 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 really the the intensity of that rivalry, as far as I could tell, had not dissipated at all. After the seventies, we have that nineteen eighty one split season when the Reds had the best record in baseball. But uh, because of the split season, the first season champ and the second season champ got to go to the playoffs basically. And so the Dodgers ended up winning the World Series in a year when the Reds had a better record than them in the in the division. So uh, that kind of fueled more of it. Uh, throughout the decade of the 80s as well. And from 70, 1970 to 1990, these teams had 11 times that they finished 1-2 one way or the other. And, and seven of those times, it was five and a half games or closer. So, I mean, these were these were big-time September battles to the pennant. Um, they combined to win 10 National pennants and five World Series championships from 1970 to 1990. Um, the, the moments I remember that were even sweeter because they were against the Dodgers were Tom Browning's perfect game. And then, of course, Norm Charlton running over Mike associate at home plate in nineteen ninety—the Reds' wire-to-wire year—that uh, might have been probably the the ending point of when the Dodgers-Reds rivalry was really a thing. Was Charlton running over him, and the Reds winning the World Series? Because never really was a thing after after that time. But man, what a rivalry for a couple decades, but especially the seventies.
1: Yeah, and it, it ended when they, you know when they realigned the division later on. But you, you wonder when there were still just two divisions. If the Reds had been, as they probably should have been, in the, in the National League East, and the Reds would have been looking at the Dodgers more often than not in the NC, NLCS and facing what was usually a little bit better Dodger pitching staff, you'll wonder who would have been in the World Series all those years.
0: Absolutely. So we move on to 1973. And before that, we've got to wrap up what happened in 72, if you'll remember from the last episode. The Reds were 95 and 59. And lost in the World Series to the Oakland Athletics. And so the Reds come into 73 with, with high hopes. But w- what are some things that are going on around baseball and, and Reds specific before we could get actually to spring training and to the season, Bill?
1: Well, the, the biggest thing, the biggest change, and this was a, you know, a groundbreaking change in, in baseball, was the American League decided to begin to use the designated hitter. first designated hitter to come to the plate was Ron Bloomberg for the Yankees. We still see discussions about the designated hitter today. It's still controversial to me today, you know, 50 years later almost. I'm not a DH guy. I would, do, I would throw it in the garbage can as quick as I possibly could if they put me in charge. But they will never
0: do that, even though I
1: am still negotiating.
0: Well, I'm voting for you if we ever have that, uh, that meeting that the committee <laughs> gets to vote. You got my, you got my support.
1: Um, Howson went into, into the winter meeting think, thinking that he needed to improve his pitching staff. So he felt like he had a little bit of surplus in the outfield. So what he did was he traded Hal McRae and a Wayne Simpson, who had never come back to being the guy he was in 1970, to the Kansas City Royals, and he picked up an outfielder named Richie Scheinbloom and a right-handed pitcher named Rad- Roger Nelson. And he, I mean, the Reds knew that McRae could hit, but he wasn't very fast, and he and he didn't have very didn't play good defense, and his attitude, which was characterized in something I read, said called carefree graded on Sparky. Now, if you saw McCray later when he was manager of the Royals and the way he dealt with the media, I don't know that I would have ever called how McCray carefree, <laughs> but maybe he was at this time. I don't know. But anyway, this this ended up being one of Halsem's worst deals for the Reds. Even, while, even with McCray not in the Reds' plans, they didn't get anything for him. Scheinblum and Nelson were both busts. Sparky later said that Richie Scheinblum never got over being in awe of playing for the Reds, and he'd be gone by the end of June. And Nelson came up with a sore arm in spring training, and he was with the Reds for two years, but he never really did anything.
0: You know, uh, you can understand kind of why Hausem wanted to do the deal. Roger Nelson had uh, won 11 games with a 2.06 ERA for the Royals in 1972. He won just seven games in his two years with the Reds total. And Scheinbaum had been an all-star in the American League in 1972 and, and you're right he was traded to the angels midway through the 73 season while hal McRae went on to a, a pretty good career with the kansas city royals another big trade uh, for the reds before the pre- the 1973 season bill
1: well they, they trade i don't know how big a trade it was i mean they, they were giving up a guy that had won 20 games for him but he had spent most of the 72 season in indianapolis and that was jim merritt they traded him to texas for a catcher named hal king and a guy named Jim Driscoll. And, and we'll hear a little bit more about Hal King later.
0: Now, back in those days, they had an amateur draft in January as well. And the Reds made a uh, picked a Hall of Famer in the uh, January amateur draft, didn't they?
1: Yes, they did. Uh, he wasn't a Hall of Famer in baseball, but he was apparently a pretty good pitcher for Southern Miss. And the Reds picked him up, picked him in the third round. He was a guy named Ray Guy who went on to have a pretty good career elsewhere.
0: Yeah, as a punter for the Raiders. John
1: Madden often said that Ray Guy was the best athlete on his team.
0: Uh, he was certainly a good uh, baseball player, but never played for the Reds. What else happened before the uh, season before we get into spring training?
1: Well, shortly before the season start, Lewis Nippert, a uh, Cincinnati attorney, he got control of 51% of the team. He bought the uh, the outstanding shares from the Gamble and the the Gamble and the Williams families. He'd been part of the original group that had bought the Reds from Bill DeWitt in
0: 66. Now we're into spring training, and we had a little bit of a brief uh, pause last year on the holdouts and the uh, salary negotiations. But this year, spring training, 1973, was more of the same. Tell us what happened in terms of the holdouts and what happened specifically with uh, Pete Rose, Johnny Bench, and Joe Morgan.
1: Well, they all refused the Reds' initial, ba- initial offers. Bench, when he started negotiate with them, he had the nerve to compare baseball salaries to other sports. At the time, uh, the NFL and Major League Baseballs were the lowest and the NBAs were the highest. Of course, they had another league in competition with them. The ABA existed then. But in, in 73, there were only 25 players in the big leagues making over 100000 And Hank Aaron was the highest. He was making 200000 a year. Jaskrebski was making 167000 Steve Carlton was making 165000 And Bob Gibson was making 160000 Bench was one of those players over 100000 and I, I'm sorry, Pete Rose was one of those players over 100000 I assume Bench probably was, too, by this point, but he may not have been. Bench and Morgan signed first right as spring training got over the way. As per usual, Pete was still holding out, which you know we've seen before and we'll see again. <laughs> Eventually, the in the negotiations, they got down to being about $5,000 apart. In fact, they got to the point where a Reds fan wrote a letter to the editor of the Enquirer suggesting that 5,000 Reds fans each mail in a dollar apiece to pay for the difference. And they, uh, they they eventually split the difference and Rose signed for 117.5, which, you know, he, again, as I, we talked about in the last episode, Pete had always said he wanted to be the first $100,000 single, singles hitter, and he was.
0: On the field in spring training, the biggest questions outside of what houseman identified with the pitching staff were shortstop and right field. At the end of 1972, Uh, Dave Concepcion and Daryl Chaney were splitting the shortstop duties, but Concepcion had a good postseason the year before, had a really good spring, and kind of won the job in 1973. And it was the beginning of a big run for Concepcion over the next uh, decade plus.
1: It would be a big big run for red shortstops. I mean, you know, the the consistency of the red shortstop position through the next 20, 30 years is, is pretty amazing. And if you think back, the idea that Davey Concepcion was split in time with Daryl Cheney is, is kind of funny when you think about it in retrospect.
0: It is funny, but of course Concepcion, 24, turned 25 that season. Uh, so he was still still young, but went on to become a Reds Hall of Famer and a deserving one. Right field at that time was a competition between George Foster and Cesar Geronimo, who had kind of split time in 72 as well. Foster ended up having a, a really bad spring, and remember, George Foster was uh, was just at that time twenty four years old, twenty three in this in the spring. He was sent to AAA Indianapolis, and really at that time Foster thought his career with Cincinnati was over, and obviously <laughs> the rest is history. It was not over. The Reds just felt he needed some more development, uh, made a change to his stance in winter ball where he was uh, had him standing more upright so he could see outside pitches better, and the Reds thought of that a year with Vern Rap, uh, Indianapolis manager and future. Red's uh, manager in the majors would put the final polish on George Foster. Bill, tell us about the pitching. Also, some questions there, right? Well, Gary Nolan's arm
1: had not recovered from the you know from the season before, and, and they'd end up having to have surgery. Uh, we wouldn't see Nolan at all in '74. I don't believe. I don't think he pitched in an inning. The rotation Sparky decided on going into the season would be Don Gullett. It would go on opening day. Jack Billingham, Ross Grimsley, and the aforementioned Roger Nelson.
0: Expectations were high, as you can imagine, from a team coming off, off a World Series and with still a, a pretty young roster. The Reds were favored, but uh, everyone expected Los Angeles, Houston, and San Francisco to contend in the National League West as well. going to be a tight division. Tell us how it started on opening day, Bill.
1: Well, it was a, it was a not, not a good day. It was windy and cold, and the high temp got the forty four. A recent release, POW who had been spent six years in Hanoi Hilton, Captain Edward Meckenbier, who grew up in Dayton, threw out the first pitch. And as I said, it was it was Gullet against Juan Marichal that day, and it was all Marichal. Marichal threw a complete game, only gave up seven hits in one run, and that run Gullet is the one that drove in that run, and the Giants beat him four to one.
0: By the end of April, uh, things were not as the Reds had hoped they would be. They were three and a half games out and in second place. We get to May 9th, and in the Reds' 9-7 victory in Philadelphia against Steve Carlton, who was as good as anyone in baseball at that time, Johnny Bench tied a major league record with his fourth home run in four at-bats. He'd homered in the final at-bat the night before in a a Reds win and then homered three straight times off Steve Carlton. And I can't imagine there were very many uh, hitters in the world who've ever homered three straight times off Steve Carlton, but as we've already said, Johnny Bench was something special.
1: Well, and we and we talked a little bit in the last episode about when Bench got hot, he was white hot, and and I and I haven't looked this up, and I'm sure you can, but I remember he beat Carlton like a drum too, and it was left hander against right hander, but I, you know for a guy that was a you know probably the best pitcher in baseball at the time or pretty dang on close, and a future Hall of Famer, I remember Bench used to just beat him
0: like a drum, on May fifteenth. The division was really, it was kind of strange. San Francisco was in first place uh, and Houston in second, two and a half back. Cincinnati was 20 and 13, uh, three games back. And the Dodgers, uh, over 500 at 19 and 16, but five games out of first place. Tell us what happened, Bill, at that point. That was kind of a key moment. The Dodgers were still there, fourth place, only five back. Um, Well, the,
1: the, the Dodgers caught fire. In June, they went 21 and eight, and the Reds had their worst month of the of the season and they went 12 and 16 and the Dodgers went just went shooting by everybody.
0: And what happened how how did that happen how did the Reds go into such a slump?
1: Well, uh, Tolan wasn't hitting, Mankey wasn't hitting, Geronimo wasn't hitting and the pitching was beat up. And so Sparky what he did was he benched Tolan and Geronimo. The Reds called up Danny Dreisen from AAA. Now Dreisen had always been a first baseman but when they saw that that you know they had a weakness at third base in Mankey they moved him over to third, and he was hitting 400 at AAA when they called him up, and they put him in the lineup at third base.
0: I like Dan Dreesen. That's he my... had a
1: good, solid Reds career. He really did. He's Most people don't know of Dan Dreesen, and, and, and when you hear him, a lot of people spit because of the Perez situation, which happens later, but he had a good, solid Reds career.
0: He did, absolutely. Now, on June 12th. Uh, Roger Nelson's out indefinitely. Don is still recovering from the hepatitis from the previous year. Bob Housen made another trade. He traded prospect Gene Locklear to San Diego and acquired left-handed uh, screwballer Freddie Norman. Tell us about that, Bill.
1: Norman had been on the block, apparently, and, and other teams had called and inquired about him, but the Reds were the only ones that offered cash in the, as part of the deal, and San Diego needed money at the time. And it's funny, you talk about how things, how timing. A few weeks later, Ray Kroc, of, you know, who owned all the McDonald's, would buy the Padres, and they wouldn't have needed the money a few months later, and the deal might not have gone through. But at that time, nobody really understood what Hausen was doing. Norman was 1-7 when the Reds got him. But Hausen liked the fact that Norman's best pitch was was an off-speed screwball, and that made his fastball seem that much faster, and this would end up being one of Hausen's best deals.
0: It would. Uh, in his first two games for the Reds, um against P- Pittsburgh and then at San Francisco, he threw complete game shutouts. Welcome to Cincinnati, Freddie Norman. And then he beat the Dodgers throwing a complete game where he had a shutout until he gave up a homer to Ron Say with two outs in and bottom of the ninth. So uh, his introduction to the Big Red Machine, he, he felt like one of the crew immediately, I think.
1: Yeah, and I, I went, just went back and looked at this. The first start was on June 15th. The, the San Francisco start was on June the 19th. And then the, the Dodgers start was on the first game of a doubleheader on June the 23rd. So in eight days, he threw 27 innings for the Reds, gave up 18 hits in one run. That'll probably make you pretty popular in a clubhouse.
0: I would think so, especially since the Reds were in that uh, downfall, as you said, and uh, the Dodgers were ascending. At the end of June, the Dodgers had come, uh, moved all the way into first place. They were up by six and a half games over the Giants, and the Reds were languishing in fourth place. They were just two games over and 11 games out of first. They just lost game one of a critical Four-game series uh, to the Dodgers at Riverfront went 13 innings. Uh, the Reds blew up, blew a five-to-one lead, gave up six runs. Clay Carroll, Pedro Borbone got kind of roughed up. Reds ended up tying it seven to seven on a Joe Morgan home run at the bottom of the ninth. The Dodgers won it in the thirteenth. And at this point, again, uh, the Reds are 11 back and in real danger of getting buried in this race because we're moving on to July. And that was uh, that was kind of a, another point where you can kind of stick a pin in the calendar and say, here's where things started to turn around.
1: So on Sunday, July the 1st, the Reds would be playing in front of like 46,000 fans, and they'd start their comeback during a daytime doubleheader against the hated Dodgers. And this day, at least the first game, would would have a very unlikely hero. Uh, Sutton went to the mound for the Dodgers in Game 1, and, and Freddie Norman was going to the mound for the Reds. And Norman was 3-1 since coming over from the Padres, as we talked about a minute ago, where he had the, the three amazing starts when he first came over. But then in his fourth start, he got kind of beat up on by the Astros in a 10-2 to loss. He gave up six runs in five and two-thirds. And at this game, though, both pitchers pitched like aces. They were both still in the ballgame when it went to the bottom of ninth, and the Reds were down 3-1. to one. And in the bottom of the ninth, Perez led off with a double, and then Sutton got the next two hitters, which was Bobby Tolan and Larry Stahl, who had started in right field, which tells you how much they were struggling at right field at the time. And Sparky thought he needed a homer, and he sent Bench up to pinch hit for Davey Concepcion. And Bill Plummer had started this game behind the plate. So he sent Bench up to face Sutton, and the last time Bench had faced Sutton, he'd hit a game-winning homer, or a game-tying homer, I'm sorry. But Sutton walked Bench. He didn't intentionally walk him, but he wasn't getting to giving him anything to hit. So the Reds had first and second with two outs. And about the only guy Sparky had left on the bench was a guy named was Hal King, who we talked about a little earlier. And King was a third-string catcher, and he had a lifetime .217 batting average. He'd started the year in Triple A for the Reds, but he'd also hit a grand slam off off a of Don Sutton off a of Sutton screwball when he'd been a Brave. And we talked about it. a couple episodes ago. We talked about a game where King happened to be catching against the Reds. So with two outs and two strikes, he gets a pitch, and he swings so hard that he tore a spike on his shoe. It went over the fence. And the Reds won the game 4-3 to three in a
0: walk-off. <laughs> and you say an improbable hero. Hal King may be uh, the most improbable hero. The third-string catcher. I love it. Game 2 of the doubleheader, which was the third game of the series, had uh, Doug Rowell versus Ross Grimsley uh, for the Reds. And the Dodgers grabbed a 2-0 lead going into the bottom of the 6th. But in the 6th, Tony Perez drove in Dave Concepcion, who had doubled. Uh, then in the 7th, Pete Rose drove in Daryl Cheney. Uh, Chaney had pinch run for Dennis Minking, stolen second. Then Rose drove him in to tie the game. And then uh, by the 8th, it was handed over to the bullpen. Still tied as the Reds came to bat in the bottom of the 10th. Pitching for the Dodgers was Charlie Huff. It ended up being a kind of a semi-legendary knuckleballer. He was in his third inning of relief. And with one out, he walked Joe Morgan. Morgan went to second on a passed ball. Uh, w- one out later, Johnny Bench walks. And then Pere- Tony Perez singles to left field, driving in the... Game-winning run, Reds won three to two. So there, they take a big doubleheader just when it looks like they were just about down and out of it in two really exciting games and and walk-off fashion, both games.
1: The final game of the, the series, Reds would send out Jim McLaughlin to the mound to be countered by Andy Messerschmidt, and, and McLaughlin gave his best, pitched his best game of the year. He gave him six innings of two-run baseball, but it was another close one. It was two to two after Reds had scored two in the bottom of the sixth. And Don Gulick would relieve him and come in and give him three scoreless innings of relief. And It would still be two to two as they go to the bottom of the ninth, and the brought and the Dodgers brought in their ace reliever Jimmy Brewer. And uh, Bench started the inning with an infield single, and Perez followed with his fourteenth home run, and the Reds had another walk off, and they won three out of four, and they were now nine games behind, and they had the momentum in the division.
0: They did have the momentum by the first from that first game of the doubleheader when King hit the how King hit the home run the Reds would end up going 60-26. and 26. That's just under a winning percentage of 700. And uh, by the end of July, the Dodgers' lead was down to three and a half games. And Pete Rose had one of my favorite quotes. I'll let you go ahead and tell us what, what, what Pete Rose say about uh, the fact that the Reds were down by three and a half games to the Dodgers.
1: He said the Dodgers may be in first place, but they're chasing us. And, and if you look at the monthly breakdown, in July, the Reds played 774 baseball. They went 24-7 and in July. I'm not sure they've ever had a month that was any better than that.
0: Yeah, and, uh, you know, the final three months, the Dodgers only 5 over 500. And uh, then at the end, September, they go 12 and 14. The Dodgers, the Reds, were 20, or went 19 and 8. So uh, it was a really incredible run that had to happen despite the fact that they lost their their starting shortstop. Dave Concepcion broke his ankle on July 22nd, and he was actually slated to start his first All-Star game uh, that same week. But he was out for the season, and that really – uh, hampered the Reds line because Daryl Cheney had to replace him and uh, Bobby Toll and Cesar, Cesar Geronimo really weren't weren't hitting um, but the following month in August pretty good uh, and a pretty significant debut in terms of building the machine who debuted on August 25th Bill?
1: We saw Ken Griffey for the, I don't know if it was exactly the first time but it was it was when he came up to stay and uh, actually it was his, his major league debut Was was that year he started out the day by going two, getting two hits against the Cardinals in, in Riverfront on the 25th of August.
0: And we've talked about the Great Eight, and here is, is one of the pieces of the Great Eight, helping to, to 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 round out that fantastic group. And of course, George Foster is going to be back for good soon as well. September 4th, the Reds took over first place, and uh, then again later in that month, September 19th, your guy Freddie Norman again.
1: Yeah, Freddie went. Uh, threw a two-hitter against the Giants to even his record at 12-12. and 12. And like as we said earlier, he was 1-7 and seven when he came to the Reds on June the 12th. But, but and before we get off of Freddie Norman, he's another one that we did a, a really, really great interview with and it's still available on Red Leg Nation Radio. Freddie gave us a lot of his time, and it's a super interview. If you get a chance, go back and listen to that.
0: Absolutely. Still available in the archive. Search for it at redlegnation.com. Fred Norman, um, I think it was a 2 Part episode because it was such a long and interesting interview that uh, we had to split it up into into two parts. September 24th, the Reds clinched the National League Western Division title with a two to one win at Riverfront Stadium over the San Diego Padres. Dick Bainey threw seven shutout innings for Cincinnati, and the Reds two home runs came on uh, two runs came on home runs by Tony Perez and Andy Costco. And uh, a momentous occasion at the end of the season. The last day of the season, September 30th, the Reds went over 2 million in attendance. There were 50,776 fans that day. They lost. Jack Billingham was going for his 20th win, um, but they went over 2 million in attendance. So uh, Cincinnati was, was really behind this team. Now, one of the kind of uh, postscript moments or one of the storylines of September of that year was the situation surrounding Bobby Tolan. And, of course, we've talked about Bobby Tolan in every episode of, of This podcast series. Uh, he was a, a key to the early Big Red Machine, uh, the building the Big Red Machine. He was um, had just a, an incredible year in 69, an even better one in, in 1970, and then was injured at the entire 71 season. 72, uh, not as good, and 73, uh, the, the season we're talking about now, uh, the worst of his career to that point. Tell us about Bobby Tolan and what was going on at the end of that season.
1: Well, by by September the 27th, the Reds suspended him for insubordination, but it had been a a season-long process of of problems with Bobby Tolan. He'd had a season-long slump, and he'd been benched several times by Sparky, and and Red Red Leg Dynasty quotes him as being the the proud and somewhat high-strung Tolan had not responded well to the benching. And and as the season moved along, Tolan withdrew more and more from his teammates and, and started keeping more and more to himself. By late August, he'd started to grow a beard, which was strictly against team policy, and when he refused to shave it off, Sparky threatened to take his uniform away. He also said he was having some problems with his back, and he missed a doctor's appointment in late in August. He said it was miscommunication. The Reds said it was just insubordination and insolence. And when Chief Bender went to the clubhouse to remind him about this doctor's appointment, it ended up with a a shouting match, and they had to be separated. How's him find Toland, and Sparky banned him from the clubhouse? And, and Tolan filed a grievance, and he got reinstated. And for you know, from then until the end of September, Sparky used him every now and again as a spot starter or pinch hitter. But he spent most of the month sitting by himself on the bench. On the night the Reds clinched the division, Tolan left the clubhouse in a hurry, and on the 27th, as I said earlier, the Reds suspended him again for insubordination.
0: Yeah, and you know uh, there were scuffles, not just with uh, Chief Bender that season, but... Uh, other front office staff, uh, teammates, and opposing players. I mean, it was really a, a a bad year. Tolan was left off the playoff roster. He was traded in the off season. And um, Red Lake Journal, if you've never read uh, that fantastic book, that is one of the basic things we're using to research these seasons, they stated, and really uh, it makes you wonder, that Tolan never seemed to recover from missing the two balls in the seventh game of the World Series uh, in 1972. And you'll recall Bill talking about those two balls in the nineteen seventy-two World Series against the Orioles, in our previous episode, he did hit only two oh six in nineteen seventy-three. He would be in the big leagues for a few more years, but would never be the star that he had been. And and really, you know, he was a legit budding star at the beginning of his career, and kind of flamed out after this point, didn't it?
1: Yeah, he was never the same player again for whatever reason. I mean, we'll never know, but um, it's it. And and I've long held the seventy the losing the seventh game of the World Series against. Bobby Tolan and and I'll never get over that. You know, I didn't I didn't sleep the night they lost the seventh game of the seventy two World Series, and I
0: was fourteen years old. <laughs> I didn't sleep after listening to you describe it in our last episode. There you go. <laughs> so the season's over. The Reds finished the nineteen seventy three season hot, ninety nine and sixty three record, and they're going to be playing the New York Mets in the National League Championship Series. The New York Mets had won the National League East. They were managed by Yogi Berra. Um, they finished the season only three games above 500. The record was 82 and 79. So the Reds 99 wins, the, the Mets 82 wins, and uh, they won the East with a miracle finish. They were actually 12 games out of first in early July, and they were the Mets were in last place as late as August the 30th, and somehow they come to uh, sweeping to the victory in September and winning the National League East, and they will face the heavily favored Cincinnati Reds. Game one.
1: Well, the, the, other thing I, the other thing I want to make clear, to, to come, and, and you're right, they were in last place the end of August, but the Mets also won 18 of their last 24 to win their division.
0: They were hot uh, coming into Cincinnati for game one of the National Championship Series, no question about it. Bill, do you remember anything about that game? I was at this game. I can remember, you know, I, I sent in for
1: tickets for this game, and I remember putting cash in an envelope and sending it to the Reds.
0: <laughs> it was a different time
1: it was a different time and i had tickets in the yellow seats and i was right down the left field line i was pretty close to the foul pole i remember and it was kind of a dark day and, and i don't remember what, what the temperature was but I, I feel like it was cool but you had Seaver against billingham and it was going to be a big day
0: tom Seaver, jack billingham tom Seaver, not yet a, a star for the reds obviously That'll come in a later episode. But Jack Billingham, who had been really solid since coming over in the same trade as Joe Morgan from the Houston Astros, uh, tell us how that game went, Bill.
1: Well, Billingham gave up two hits and a walk in the first, but he got out of it when he got Cleon Jones and hit into a double play. And Seaver gave the Mets the lead in the second with a double, driving in Bud Harrelson, who'd walked. And that was the last hit that Billingham would give up that day. Seaver was Seaver, though, and the Mets led one to nothing going to the bottom of the eighth. Sparky sent Hal King up. The pit for Billingham, hoping that lightning would strike twice, but he'd, he'd strike tw- he'd strike out, and that was Seaver's twelfth of the day. He'd get one more, and he'd end up with thirteen. But Pete Rose followed Hal King with a home run to even the score at one to one. In the ninth inning, they brought in Sparky went to the left hander Tom Hall to replace Billingham, and he walked the first guy he faced, who was who was Rusty Staub, La Grande Orange. And the Sparky pulled Tommy Hall and put Pedro Borbone in, who got John Milner, Cleon Jones, and Jerry Grody to, to send the game to the bottom of the ninth. In the bottom of the ninth, Perez grounded out, and then Bench hit a home run. And if if my memory is not wrong, it went right down the left field line, almost hitting the foul pole, and went out of the ballpark to give the Reds a two to one win, and the Reds leading in the series one to nothing.
0: So an exciting win in Game One, and I should note that. This is one of the series that uh, when we were Chris Garber and I were writing the Big Fifty, the men in moments that made the Cincinnati Reds. This series actually is one we really <clears> wanted to include because there were some some big moments. Obviously, and we're going to talk about some more of them. But that was Johnny Bench's one of the biggest home runs he's ever hit there. Obviously, in Game One to give the Reds a one nothing lead. Uh, game Two also at Riverfront Stadium was close all the way until the ninth inning. The Mets were leading one to nothing on Rusty Staub's home run, um, and Staub actually hit three in the series. He was a really really fine player the Mets, and then later the uh, Montreal Expos. Don Gullett had thrown five innings of one-run baseball. Clay Carroll, three scoreless innings. But in the ninth, Tom Hall uh, comes in. Sparky brings in uh, Tom Hall. And he and Pedro Bourbon combined to give up four runs on five hits. And then uh, the Reds just couldn't get anything done against uh, Mets lefty John Matlack, who hit it, threw a two-hit shutout. Um, and both those hits by a guy that's sort of forgotten to Big Red Machine lore, the Reds right fielder Andy Costco had both of those hits, but that tied the series one to one, and it headed back to Shea Stadium, and New York.
1: You mentioned Costco, and I'm looking at his numbers. He had a pretty good year off the bench for the Reds. He had a, you know, he played in, he got, you know, he only got 135 plate appearances, but he had nine home runs. He had an OPS plus a 155. You know, that's a that's a solid bench guy.
0: Yeah, 73 and 74 for the Reds. He was really a a pretty good uh, player. Uh, 74, not as, not as good, and that was the end of his career. But uh, 71, certainly, a big-time contributor to a 99-win team. Uh, just a, a name that most of us don't think of when you think of the Big Red Machine. There are a number of guys like that. Um, but Andy Costco certainly helps out uh, in the playoffs. Now, it goes back to New York, uh, Game 3 in New York. Bill, you want to tell us about that one?
1: Well, this is this is a an iconic game, but not for the result of the game. Uh, The Reds went with Grimsley, and he couldn't even get out of the second inning. They brought in Dave Tomlin. He wasn't much better. The Mets jumped out to a a 6-0 lead, and they ended up coasting to a 9-2 win. And that's all that happened, right? Mm, Nah, not so much. It's interesting that if you look at the Reds' starting lineup that day, Costco started in right field, which is fine, but Armbruster started in center field. I'll bet you Ed Armbruster didn't start 20 games in his whole career with the Reds. Rusty hit two home runs. Kuzman threw a complete game, the second left-hander, in two games to, to beat up on the Reds. But the highlight of the game was in the fifth inning. With Rose on first, a ball's hit, and he goes in hard into Harrelson to break up the double play. And, you know, they exchanged some, some recipes and some discussion points on, on, you know, ballet. And they must have disagreed about something because all of a sudden... Punches were flying and the bench is empty.
0: Before you go any further, Bill, this is one that if you have not seen it, you need to go to YouTube immediately and see this fight between Pete Rose and uh, New York Met Bud Harrelson in Game Three of the 1973 National League uh, Championship Series because it is uh, it's just it's it's crazy to watch. So, uh, but things started to calm down after a moment after the punches started flying, but then it got a little crazy again, didn't it, Bill?
1: Yeah, because by then, the Reds' bullpen had gotten had come charging in, led by Pedro Bourbon, and, and Clay Carroll later said that the reason it took him a while to get down there was they couldn't get the gate open from the bullpen. And finally, Bourbon just ripped the gate off the hinges and threw it out of the way. And then there's a story about as the fight's really quietened down, you know, Bourbon picks up a hat and puts it on, and somebody says something, and he picked up a Mets hat. And he took it off and looked at it and then ripped it apart with his teeth.
0: That's a legendary moment in Red's history when Pedro Borbon ripped apart a Mets cap with his teeth. Oh, But it didn't end there, did it?
1: No, you know. then the next inning, Rose goes out to take his place in left field, and he was getting a, a shower of everything from beer cans to pop bottles to batteries, and, and finally Sparky just felt like the only thing he could do to protect his team was pull everybody off the field. And the Umps tried to convince him to move Pete from left field to center field. Sparky said, no, I'm not changing my defense. And the the president of the National League, Chubb Feeney, he he even talked about them forfeiting the game to the umpires. And the Mets sent Yogi Barron, Willie Mays, and Tom Seaver, Cleon Jones, and Rusty Staub out to left field to to plead with the fans to to knock it off. And and Staub even took a bat out there with him just in case. But, (laughs) you know. The grand finale was the Mets were leading 2-1 to one in the series going to Game 4.
0: Yeah, the 99-win Reds down two games to one and still in New York for Game 4. The starters in Game 4 were Fred Norman for the Reds and another lefty third in a row for the Mets, so it was George Stone. Stone had been 12-3 and three with a 2.8 ERA that year. His ERA plus was 130. That season, which is uh, basically 30% above league average. And so, uh, outstanding year. And uh, it's kind of interesting that the Mets went with a four-man rotation in this series. Because the first three were Tom Seaver, John Matlack, and Jerry Kuzman. And those are three players that had really good, long careers. They went with Stone. And Stone had, there's an argument, he'd been better than John Matlack that season. But that's why they went with four pitchers, I guess, in the National League Championship Series. Freddie Norman gave up only one run on one hit through five innings stone went six and two-thirds and gave up one run uh, on a home run to tony Tony perez don gullett and tug mcgraw came in, in relief and they kind of held each other each other's team in check it was one-to-one going into extra innings in the top of the 12th pete rose got his revenge i guess he hit a uh, home run off harry parker to right field and as he circled the base for the two-to-one reds lead between second and third is Really, what would become one of the defining images of the Big Red Machine? He rose his right fist in the air, and, uh, and I'm sure you remember that image, Bill. Oh, I do.
1: It, well, it was an iconic Big Red Machine poster for years and years of Pete with his with his fist up in the air and flexing his arm, and they you know they, that was a I think it was a giveaway in '74 was that poster I, at the ballpark if I remember right.
0: So the series is tied two to two. Game five, and we get a rematch of uh, Billingham versus Seaver. And tell us what happened in game five. The Reds advanced to the World Series, right, for the second straight year.
1: Uh, you're making me do this. <laughs> I um, am.
0: This is on you.
1: So it's it's Seaver against Billingham again. And it, it game's two to two in, in the fifth. And the, Red, and the Mets kind of blow the game open with four runs that, that really came about because of a mental error by, by Danny Dreesen at third base. And let's remember that he hadn't been playing third base too long in the big leagues. What happened was Wayne Garrett doubled to open the inning, and then Felix Meehan tried to bunt him over to third. Well, Billingham picked up the bunt and threw to Dreesen, but Dreesen got confused. And rather than tag the runner, he tagged the bag. So instead of one out with a runner on first, they had first and third and no outs. And before you knew it, the Mets scored four runs, and the game was over. Seaver went eight in the third, and McGraw came in and got the last two outs. And the Mets are going to the World Series, and the Reds are going home.
0: And the Reds missed an opportunity, again, after that 99-win regular season, to get a little bit of revenge on the Oakland Athletics, who advanced from the American League to the World Series once again. Wrap up this series. What how the Reds feel after this series? The the players.
1: Well, there was a lot of anger and disappointment, but they all admitted later that when you could throw three starters out there like they did, and and you know the three left-handers really gave them trouble. Uh, anything happened in a short series, and you know we we found that over time in the last fifty years, how many times these short series go to teams that aren't necessarily the better team, but they got hot at the right time.
0: It happened. The Reds did not make the World Series this year. And the year before, they had lost in the World Series. Uh, 71, they did not make the World Series. 1970, they made the World Series. So uh, three of those four years, the Reds had a good claim on being the best team in baseball, but could not get it done. And some of that frustration uh, we're going to see as we move into the next episode as well. Now, let's wrap up 1973. Again, 99-63 record. The attendance uh, of over 2 million, as we said, was the second best in baseball. But well, it was the first time the Reds had ever gone over $2 million in attendance. Uh, Pete Rose uh, won his third batting title, 338 average, and set a club record with 230 hits. Um, and that's a lot of hits. That's a lot of hits, and he won the MVP that season. And The Reds obviously had uh, three other players in the top ten, so four out of the t- top ten vote-getters. Joe Morgan finished fourth, uh, and a good argument that Joe Morgan had a better year than, than Pete Rose, but Tony Perez was seventh, and Johnny Bench, coming off the MVP year the previous season, finished 10th, in the voting. And as you look at it, Bench's year was not up to necessarily his standards. And we talked uh, last episode about that they went into his chest cavity, that he was never the same, but still a really good season. Tony Perez, an outstanding year, hit 314, 27 homers, 101 RBIs. Joe Morgan, just uh, 406 on base percentage, uh, 26 homers, 35 doubles, 67 stolen bases. Just an outstanding year. But Pete Rose, uh, with that fantastic year as well, wins the most P- value. Perez had, a, Perez had a
1: 393 on base percentage that year.
0: That's not bad. No,
1: that's not bad.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. So the offense, and he was at thirty-one years old. Um, Pete Rose was thirty-two. Everyone else under thirty in that lineup. Uh, what about the pitching, Bill?
1: Well, Billingham was fourth in the Cy Young. Norman ended up tied for sixth. As, as we've talked about before, the pitching was better than you better than you believe and better than you remember.
0: Yeah, Billingham was nineteen and ten that year with a three point zero four ERA, and and all the Fords four. Primary starters for the Reds they started the most games. Billingham, Ross, Grimsley, Dongle, and Fred Norman had ERAs uh, in the the low to mid threes, um, which which will get it done on a team that can score as many runs as the Reds. So yes, better than better than you would remember. Would you say this was the season that the Reds Dodgers rivalry really kind of kicked into high gear? I, I think
1: it, it just continued to build. It had started earlier, but the, I, this was probably the year that it that it went over the cliff. You know that they they really really didn't like each other. Yeah.
0: All right, anything else you want to say before we move on to 1974, Bill?
1: Well, the the, the only thing is I, I I want to talk for a minute about, about Jim McLaughlin. He'd come to the Reds in, in 69 with Pedro Borbone for Alex Johnson and Chico Ruiz. He had a, a, a pretty good year in 70 and an average year in 71, and he, he continued to decline after that. In August of 73, he'd been traded to the White Sox for a player to be named later, and, and that would be his last year in baseball. Less than a year later, he got, he got really, really sick, and originally he got an incorrect diagnosis of a, of a stomach cancer, and it was later found that he had uh, leukemia, and he would pass away on December the 23rd, 1975, at age 32.
0: A sad story for a guy that had a, an awful lot of talent, and really was, uh, was integral in, in the building of the Big Red Machine. We are four years into the machine, and... There's some questions at this point. What's what's the biggest question that stands out to you about the Cincinnati Reds after 1973?
1: Whether they'd ever be able to get over the hump. Could they win the big one? You know, it's kind of like in the PGA, they talk about, you know, you can be the best player that, that, that hasn't won a major. That's kind of the way people were talking about the Reds at this point.
0: Would this team ever get over the hump is the, the, the primary question that we're going to be asking in our next episode Thank you for listening to Building the Machine, a brand new podcast series from Red Leg Nation Radio. To get each episode of the show delivered to you automatically, subscribe to Red Leg Nation Radio. You can find us for free at iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play. Essentially, wherever you find podcasts, we're going to be there. Many of the facts, figures, and anecdotes from today's episode came from BaseballReference.com, and the books Red Leg Journal by Greg Rhodes and John Snyder, Big Red Dynasty by Greg Rhodes and John Arardi, and The Big 50, The Men and Moments That Made. The Cincinnati Reds by Chris Garber. Until next time, for Bill Lack, this is Chad Dotson saying, So long, everyone.